one of the campus directors here at Chi Alpha, and I get the awesome privilege of introducing our guest speakers tonight. They're with the traveling team, uh, and they're going to be here with us. And when they say that they're the traveling team, fam, they travel, okay? They're on, like, month seven of consistent travel. So you guys have been, like, going to SBO for a week. They're on month seven, okay? I think they put, like, 8,000 miles in Mama Van, and they're here. So it's going to be awesome. And they're going to be kicking off our spring teaching series, which we're going to be calling Every Student Goes, Every Student Gives, Every Student Prays, and Every Student Welcomes. If you guys were with us at winter camp, you remember E. Scott Martin, our national Chi Alpha director, shared Chi Alpha's vision and mission statement for how we're going to reach all nations. And we believe it's going to be from every student giving, every student going, every student praying, and every student welcoming. And we just thought it would be a perfect fit to have the traveling team kick off our series tonight. Um, and so they're going to be sharing with us how you as students can go and how you guys get to partner in the mission of God to go. So with that, I'm going to welcome up Molly. And so let's give her a warm Ellensburg welcome. Take it away. Thank you. Wow. Thanks, guys. That's so fun. Well, like Brandon said, my name is Molly, and I'm here with my teammates Mason and Isabel, and we are the traveling team. And so you're probably wondering, what is the traveling team? Well, we are literally a team that travels. The name says it all. We pack our lives up into suitcases, put it in the back of our really, really cool minivan, and we road trip from college campus to college campus, speaking with college students just like yourselves about the reality that God always has and always will have a heart for the world. And so, yeah. So what that's going to look like for us tonight is in a second, Mason's going to come up, and he's going to walk us through the entire Bible. We're going to sprint from Genesis to Revelation, and we're going to track that common theme of God's heart for the world. And then after that, we're going to be hosting a part two. It's going to be like an additional 20, 25 minutes where we are going to dive deeper into how we can be a part of God's global mission and how you can tell other people about God's heart for the world. And so I promise you, your night is not complete without part one and part two. So make sure that you guys go ahead and plan on sticking around for that. But y'all, I am so excited to be here with you guys tonight and for you to hear this message. Because after my freshman year of college, I was sitting at a really tiny church in Destin, Florida. And I heard this message for the very first time. And it radically changed my life. It changed the way that I viewed God, his people, and his mission. And so my hope and my prayer is that tonight it radically changes each and every one of your lives. And so with that, I'm going to pray. Mason's going to come up, and we're just going to get started. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for tonight, Lord, that we have the opportunity to openly gather together to worship, to pray, to learn about you and what your word says, Father. So I just pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive this message. Lord, I pray that you would remove any distractions, Lord, and would we be totally present here, God. Lord, I pray that the nations would be reached and impacted because of the students sitting in this room tonight, God. You are worthy and good, and God, I just give tonight to you and pray that you would move mightily. So I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Malls. Like she said, my name is Mason. I am excited to be here, but for more reasons than just the fact that we're here. To be completely honest with you guys, I grew up in small town South Arkansas, which means the weather year-round was hot, more hot, slightly less hot, and then one time of the year we had this perfect thing called fall. Okay, any of my fall people in here? Yeah! Oh man, fall's the best, is it not? I, it has literally everything you could want. Leaves start changing colors, pumpkin spice starts flowing. I mean, it gets the people going, okay? 
And not only that, but it has, I feel like, summer has a lot to offer. I don't want to discredit the beach and the tan and whatever else goes on. But fall, fall has the most fall activities, okay? It just has the most you can do. You can go carve a pumpkin. You can go ride on a bell of hay. You can, like, go to a petting zoo and, like, touch a goat if you want to do that type of thing. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know. But I've always loved it. But one thing since I was a kid and I was caught up watching alien movies, there was one thing that always got my mind going more than anything else. It was the corn maze. Okay, right? The aliens go in, they carve that thing up. I was like, that's crazy. And then I found out it's just some guy on a tractor, and I was like, that's sad. <laughs> but hey, here we are. So when I got to college and I found out there was a corn maze 20 minutes outside of town, freshman Mason thought, this is my moment. I've been waiting for this for 18 long years, and finally, it's my time to conquer the corn maze. And so freshman Mason, being real prideful and real dumb, goes out to the corn maze at about 12 o'clock one night. Because not only did I think that I wanted to defeat this thing, I wanted to do it by myself. And what better time to do it than like midnight on a Monday. And so I drive out to this corn maze, and I'm about to go in this thing. I've got in one hand my phone flashlight. In my other hand, I've got a pocket knife. It's like yay big. I'm like, if a raccoon attacks me, maybe I'll be okay. I don't know what I was thinking. But I go in, and about 20 minutes in, I'm the most confident I could be. I'm like, corn maze, corn schmaze, this thing is easy, okay? About 40 minutes in, I'm going, I should have checked cell reception, okay? That's on me, that's on me, but we're good, we're fine. And then about an hour in, you realize that all corn looks like corn. You can't tell the difference. <laughs> Dude, I'm stuck in this thing. I've been in here for an hour, I'm confused, I'm frustrated, about 15 minutes go by, and my phone starts sending me red alerts, man, 20%. 10%, and I'm going, oh, no. So I do the only logical thing I could think to do. I turn it off. I'm like, I'm going to save that last 10 for an emergency because maybe this isn't one. I don't know. But I turn the phone off. I stick it in my pocket. I sit down on a bell of hay, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, dude, what am I going to do? And I just look up. I look up, and I see a bright, a bright light kind of coming over the corn. And I think the same thing that you're all thinking right now. Aliens are real. <laughs> oh, man, this is the worst way to die. Oh, freshman in a corn maze, not what I thought was going to go down. Oh, no, I see this light, and I go for the first time all night. I go, oh, hope. <laughs> and so I go towards that thing, and about 15 minutes later, I am standing at about 1.30 in the morning on a Tuesday now. It's no longer Monday. <laughs> I'm standing in fr at the, like the end of the corn mate, like the corn exit. I'm just standing there, and I look about 15 feet in front of me, and there's a lamppost that, if I had to guess, had been on the entire night. <laughs> and I never saw it because the whole time I was hunched over with my little phone flashlight trying to figure my own way out. Man, I was confused, I was frustrated, and I was just so caught up because I thought I had the answer. I thought I could do it. I thought I knew the way out. I thought I could get out of here on my own. And the realization I have now, I'm no longer confused, frustrated freshman Mason. I am now confused, frustrated post-college Mason. 
And I realized that I've treated life the same way I've treated the corn maze. I keep attaching my purpose to these little flashlights, these tiny little lights that I think are going to guide me or get me out of the confusion and frustration that is life. Whether it's a relationship, a, a job, a resume, success, financial freedom, whatever you want to stick a label on and call it, I think each of us have a flashlight that we're like, man, as long as this thing doesn't run out of battery, I should get out of this okay. But what I want to tell you is that it is running out of battery. There's no purpose that we could hold or grab for ourselves that will be efficient, that will be sufficient for eternity. The only purpose that will go for eternity is one that is outside the maze. One that is outside of ourselves, the one that God has given us. You see, an eternal God has given us a lamppost to set our eyes on. And it's his purpose. It's his purpose for our lives. And tonight, that's what we're going to do. We're going to start at Genesis. We're going to go to Revelation. And we're just going to look and ask God, what is your purpose for my life? What should I set my eyes on? And we're going to start at the very beginning. If we're going to start with Genesis, we should probably start with chapter 1. And in chapter 1 through 11 of Genesis, what you have is kind of the introduction to the rest of the story. You have God setting up the rest of Scripture and what his purpose is. In Genesis 1, you have creation. You have Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with God. And then God gives them the first command we have in Scripture. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We see in this moment God's design for the world is for it to be filled with people who know, love, and worship him in a relationship. But then sin enters the picture when Adam and Eve disobey, and from then sin gets out of hand. It gets so out of hand that God hits the reset button on earth, and he starts over after the flood with Noah and his family. When Noah gets off the ark, he and his family, they get a command. It's a command we've seen before. It's the first one given in the Bible. It's be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God says this to Noah because, once again, his design is the world to be filled with people who know, worship, love him in a relationship. But then sin gets out of hand again, doesn't it? And sin gets out of hand again, and when we come to Genesis 11, we find that mankind has been fruitful, they have multiplied, they have not filled the earth. They're actually all gathered together in one place, and they decide to make a name for themselves. You see, they don't want to give God glory, they want to bring glory to their own name. So they decide to build a tower called the Tower of Babel. Now what God does in this moment in response to this prideful act by humanity, in response to this sin, what he does is he splits mankind up, he puts us all over the earth, and he gives us different languages. And at the end of Genesis 11, you have a world that is full of people. They've been fruitful. They've multiplied. They've filled the earth. But now the thing that's missing is that relationship. The world is filled with people, but not filled with people who are worshiping and in right relationship with God. And so the question that we're going to tackle the rest of the night, God's purpose, his purpose for our lives, how is God going to save his people? How is God going to save the world? And I'm going to be honest with you. Spoiler alert, we only have to flip the page to find out. You see, in Genesis 12, God's going to show us exactly what his purpose is. He's going to lay out my game plan for saving the world. God's game plan, very simply, is this. He's going to look down on the planet. He's going to pick one man out. He's going to select that man, and out of him, he's going to make a nation for himself. He's going to make a people for himself to save all peoples. That's God's game plan 
In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says this. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, better known as Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all nations on earth will be blessed through you. God is saying this to Abraham. He's saying, I want to use you and the people that will become from you to save the world. But before we get to that blessing, I'm going to ask you to do something. See, the first thing that God says to him is he says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I'll show you. The first thing God does is basically say, hey, I'm going to need you to leave everything you know, your comfortable, your security, and I'm going to need you to trust me. You see, God first calls Abraham to faith, and then from there, he says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. You see, before we get to the blessing, we first have to put our faith in the Lord. You see, before God blesses us to save others, we have to first put our trust and faith in him. And we'll get to what that specifically means here in a little bit. But I want you guys to see that. And now what we're going to do is we're just going to chase this blessing. We're going to chase this lamppost promise that God gives to Abraham to save all peoples by saving his people. And we're going to go from son or from Abraham to his son to Isaac. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through your offspring, all Nations on earth will be blessed from son to grandson. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And then after this promise is given three generations deep, God's actually going to do something. He's going to change Jacob's name. Does anybody know what Jacob's name is changed to? You guys are biblical scholars. I love it. Come on with it. Come on with it. Who does the Old Testament follow? Yahweh is, uh, it's an accurate answer. It follows Gordon. But the Israelites, yes. Not a trick question. Promise I'm not going to make anybody look stupid tonight. That's not my goal. Um, But it follows the Israel, the nation of Israel. Why does it do that? Because the Old Testament is following the Genesis 12 promise. You see, Genesis 12 sets up the rest of Scripture. And as we watch it go from generation to generation throughout the Old Testament, we're going to hit some major stories. Some are going to sound really familiar. Like when God parts the Red Sea and all the surrounding nations watch God save his people from Egypt, the surrounding nations go, "Woo, that God must be the real God. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, three guys that are thrown into a fiery furnace for their faith, are rescued from the flames. Why? Because the same king that threw them in is now going to make a royal decree that all nations should respect and not talk trash about their God because the God of Israel is the one true God. Even David and Goliath, the ultimate underdog, a story of a teenager, a prepubescent teen, who with a rubber band and a rock takes on the baddest man on the planet and wins. For a long time, I learned that David and Goliath, I'm David, right? And with God on my side, I can conquer anything. I was never David. I'm Mason. That just doesn't make sense. (laughs) No, no. None of us were ever David. You see, this, this story isn't just about God saving his people. The reason that God saves the Israelites, the reason that God uses a kid to defeat a giant is because how else could you explain it? You see, David says this is why he defeats Goliath. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand that all the earth 
may know that there is a God in Israel. You see, David defeats Goliath because not just the Philistines, not just Israel, but every nation that hears about that is going to go, God must be the one true God. The God of Israel must be the one true God. And it happens all over the major stories. It happens all over the book of Psalms. 175 times in the book of Psalms alone, God repeats the Genesis 12 promise. One of my favorite books of the Bible is the Psalms because it says awesome stuff. It says stuff like this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Guys, I read that, and I'm like, it's picture day, and I need that blessing, okay? I mean, come on with it. I can try not to get mustard on my shirt, but when I sit down and I take that picture, God, I, I'm going to need that graciousness, all right? It's true. It's true. I had a buzz cut and braces in high school. I wasn't the most photogenic guy. Here we are. <laughs> but for years, I treated the whole Bible like it was a yearbook. I treated every story like it was picture day, and I'm just going, God, where is... Where am I at? How can you bless me? What can I get out of this for my life? You see, I kept treating it like it was some flashlight that I could just wave and point and use however I wanted to. When the Bible was never meant to be a yearbook, it was meant to be a diary. It's God's heart poured out, his words for our life. And if I get stuck looking for only the blessings that affect me, I miss why I was blessed in the first place. You see... The first verse of Psalms, uh, the first verse of Psalms uh, 67 says, may God be gracious and bless me. The next six say this, that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations to the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. God will bless us. And all the ends of the earth will fear him. God saves his people to bless and save other people. Man, it's not just in the Psalms either. It's all over the prophets. Isaiah 49, 6, I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Ezekiel 39, I will display my glory among the nations. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know the last time you guys went to the sea, but it's completely covered in water, so that's pretty good news. And in the last book of the Old Testament, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. For years, I thought the Old Testament was some boring history book, a random collection of facts, but the reality is, it's a neon sign saying God loves the world. And he is saving and blessing his people to save and bless all peoples. And the question now is, we get to the end of the Old Testament, we followed this story of the promise to bless his people from Abraham by generations, 48 generations later, what happens? Where do we go? What happens when we get to the new? Some of you may know the rest of the story because Matthew opens up the New Testament with a genealogy. But then again, if some of you are like me, for years you saw genealogies, you saw a big list of names and you went sick, I get to skip a couple pages. This is great. I love reading this part of the Bible. This is awesome. 
But then you realize the first verse tells us why the list of names was important at all. You see, in Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew starts the New Testament not by going a thousand years back to David, but by going 2,000 back to Abraham. Because the claim that he's making in this moment is that when God made a promise to bless the world through his people, what he meant was 2,000 years from now, 48 generations from now, I will send my own son to save the world. You see, the Genesis 12 promise is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God. He will live a sinless life, a perfect life, one that we could never hope to live. And then he will be crucified on a cross and killed to pay the punishment and the penalty for the sins that we have committed. And three days later, he will rise from the grave And in resurrection, he will declare victory over sin and over death. And he will make it possible for anyone who hears of this and decides to turn their eyes to him, to turn and trust in him as their Lord and Savior, they would then have eternal relationship with him. And I share that with you because if you're in this room, before we get to the blessing, we first have to talk about faith and trust. And if you're in this room and you have not decided to put your faith and your trust in Christ, what I would ask you to do is consider that. There is no decision more eternal, there is no decision more weighty than that of deciding to trust Christ with your eternity. And if you're in this room and you haven't made that decision, talk to whoever invited you, talk to whoever brought you. If you're here because you just walked in, man, talk to me, okay? Talk to Brandon, talk to literally anybody in this room and just say, hey, what does this mean for me? Because it is a decision worth questioning and walking through. Because Christ died for you. How do I know this? Because the most popular verse in all scripture told me he died for you. What's the most popular verse in all scripture? You guys, I'm telling you, biblical scholars, look, you know this stuff. This is written on your heart. You got it. Man, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. For most of my life, I actually learned this verse as for God so loves Mason, which is great and it's important and it's wonderful. The problem was it took me 11 years to take my name back out of the verse. It took me 11 years to realize that I'm not the finish line of John 3.16. Guys, we are not the finish line of John 3.16. The nations are. And you see, what we now get to do, if you are a follower of Christ in this room, you get to joyfully take your name out of John 3.16, place the world back where it belongs, and align our purpose and our eyes with his purpose. And that is to save and bless his people, to save and bless all peoples. And if you're wondering, is this really my purpose is this really what I'm called to do? Because I, we've just been looking at God's purpose. I don't know if it's my purpose. To that, I would say, man, we, we should probably just ask Jesus. And I would say to that, Jesus tells us five different times. He gives these things called the Great Commissions, uh, essentially final commands to his followers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The most popular one 
In Matthew 28, it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Beautiful, very simple command. Go. Go make disciples of all nations. Not just here, not just there, but everywhere on earth. In the second one, Mark 16, 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. The emphasis here, all creation, all the world, there's no one unworthy of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not our preference that determines who should hear. Okay? The third one, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. This is written... That is a callback to this is the fulfillment of the promise. This is not something new that Jesus invented. This is something that has been God's plan from the start. In the fourth one, we get in John 20, 21. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. This is one of my favorites. Because for years, I think I struggled with this whole idea of am I called? Am I sent? Am I worthy to go? I have good news, guys. If you're in this room and you're following Christ and you breathe oxygen, and everybody does. I've seen, I've seen everybody say they do. You are sent. You don't have to ask permission to go with the gospel. Christ gave it to you 2,000 years ago. And in the final one, if you read the first four and you thought, maybe I can't do this, maybe this is my purpose, but I'm still like on the edge, I have even better news. It's not your burden to carry. It's just your purpose to live out. What I mean by that is Christ says, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the thing that Christ is making clear right now is that it is your purpose to share, it is not your purpose to save. We in this room, we are not Jesus, but through the power that is the Holy Spirit, we get to faithfully invite people and ask God to move in their heart. And so while it is not on your shoulders to save, it is a command to share, both here, there, everywhere. And if this is real, if this is the reality, if this is what our lives are meant for, if this is the purpose that we are meant to set our eyes on, the question now becomes, what do we do with it today? To which I would say, I probably don't have the authority to tell you what to do with it, okay? I'm three years out of college, I'm doing my best, but I can't tell you how to live the rest of your life. I could just read scripture to you all day. But if there was somebody out there who may be like, years and years ago, spent most of his life dedicating, sharing the gospel with people all over that he could. If there was a guy out there who evangelized in 59 different cities across eight different countries and was shipwrecked three times and bitten by a snake and thrown in jail and still shared the gospel, like if there was somebody like that out there, I'd be like, maybe we should ask that guy for advice. And I don't know, well... Have you guys ever heard of Paul? <laughs> Maybe we should ask Paul, hey, Paul, what, 
what should we do with the gospel? If this is our purpose, where should we go? And to that, I would say in Romans 15, Paul tells us what his strategy with the gospel was. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. You see, Paul, with an understanding of the gospel, who wrote five chapters earlier that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, understood that not everyone has equal opportunity to call. And so what he did with his life and his purpose was make sure that Jesus got to those who had never heard the name of Jesus before because he wanted everyone to have an opportunity to call. And if he was alive today, I think I know where Paul's headed. I think uh, you don't have to throw a rock very far on a map to figure out where Paul's headed. Because you see, in the world today, this is what it looks like. There's an area of the world called the 1040 window. Inside of this window behind me, there are 5 billion people. That's over two-thirds of the world's population. All the way from West Africa to East Asia, some islands down below, in the red up there, live two out of every three people on the face of the planet. But the crazier statistic is that three of those 5 billion, 3 billion people in the 1040 window, are considered unreached with the gospel. Now, unreached is a little different than unsaved. I didn't always know this, but essentially what it means is to be unsaved means you may not be following Christ, you may not be in a relationship with the Lord, but you know a Christian. You could walk into a church or a Chi Alpha meeting. You probably could download the Bible on an app on your phone. You aren't following Christ, but you have access to him. To be unreached is to not have access at all. It's to not necessarily have a Bible written in your native language, not be able to stumble into a church or accidentally turn on a Christian radio station. You know, to be unreached means that you don't have access to Jesus. The reality actually is inside of that window, the 3 billion, 86% of them statistically will live their entire life, be born, go to school, go to work, have a family, and then die, never having had a meaningful conversation with a Christian. And I share this with you because that is a harsh reality. Because the harsh reality is that there are 3 billion people in the world who are living their lives attached to a flashlight that is running out of battery. And we in this room, we have the real thing. We have the lamppost. We have the fire. We see Christ for who he is. And I, I don't want to just guilt and shame you with scary statistics, but I want you to look at your own life and be thankful for the freedom that you have in Christ. Man, to get to sit in a room together and worship the Lord publicly to, to get to wake up and carry your Bible wherever you want, and the worst thing anybody could do is say something mean. I want you to live in the true freedom that you have, because whether it's big or small, freedom is a gift. And I don't know about you guys, I don't know if you remember the first time you felt freedom. It doesn't have to be spiritual. It can be something small. For some of you, it might be like me. It might be the first time you got your driver's license. 
it was the first time you probably looked up and were like, oh, I can, I can do whatever I want now. That's awesome. You probably still couldn't, but like it felt that way. I remember the first summer that I had that driver's license, and I remember thinking, man, I'm so excited to go do whatever I want this summer. And then I remember my dad walking into my room the first day of summer. You see, my dad runs a carpentry business, and I realized uh, all of that freedom was about to go, woo. I was about to lose it because he was about to ask me to come to work with him. And here's what I want you to know is I'm going to tell my dad yes. Not because, probably the reasons you think, but because me and my dad didn't have a great relationship growing up. You see, he had two jobs, wasn't around most of the time. I bounced around houses. And so when he comes, when I'm 16 years old, and he says, do you want to come work with me? I say yes, because I'm guaranteed a summer with my dad. And so I say yes, I go to work with him. Here's what I didn't realize about this equation. I was going to hate the work we were doing. (laughs) Man, we start building a house, and I realize I don't know anything about building a house. This is terrible. I'm a walking toolbox. I'm getting more paint on myself than the wall. Um, it's just a tough time. But over the course of that summer, as I, as I started to learn the job, as I started to spend more time with my dad, and he started teaching me these things, I, I started to realize, okay, this isn't bad. This is actually, it could kind of be fun. Like we're building a house, I'm watching the flooring go down, the crown molding go up, the tiling go in in the bathroom, the kitchen come to life. And I'm starting to realize we're building something that's going to last a lot longer than us. You see, me and my dad, we're going to have very finite lives. But hopefully, we built the house well enough that for the next two to three generations, there's going to be people living in there, and then somebody else will probably come along and renovate it. But the reality is, I ended up loving it so much that by the time that we left at the end of that summer, I was legitimately sad. I was like, man, this is kind of a bummer. Give me another house. (laughs) I remember walking out that last day as we walked to the truck, and I realized my dad wasn't walking with me anymore. I got kind of confused, so I, like, turned around, and he's just standing in front of the house statue just looking at it. And so I walk up, my dad's not a man of many words, and I'm kind of looking at the house, and I'm looking at him, and I'm trying to figure out what did we miss, what did I mess up, what's going on here, and he just looks at me, and he just put a hand on my shoulder, and he just goes, Mason, thanks for building this with me. And I share that with you, because for me, that's a, that's a little shining moment on a rough history with my dad. It's an imperfect son, an imperfect father, but it's a beautiful moment. And what I want you to know is that it is so easy for us to discredit and ignore the 1040 window because we see it as a broken down house or there's a lot of work and I don't know if I'll enjoy the work, let alone if I should be equipped or qualified to be part of the work. But what I want you to know is that a perfect father has extended his hand and he said, daughter, son, would you build this with me? He extended his hand and invited us into the greatest purpose that we could ever hope for. Why would we hold on to a flashlight when we could set our eyes and our lives on something eternal, on something incredibly more important than anything we could hope to do. 
You see, God said, would you come build the house with me in the Great Commissions? You have a part to play if you'll just say yes. And the question now becomes, what is God building? And it's beautiful. You see, we get a vision of what God's building in Revelation 7-9. This is what heaven looks like. You see, in Revelation 7-9, John says this. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, who is Jesus. You see, there's going to come a day where we're going to stand in heaven, side by side, and we're going to get to worship the living King. And we're going to look around that room and there will be people from every nation, from all tribes and tongues. And my prayer for this room is you get there and you're not in a room full of strangers. You are a room full of brothers and sisters that you prayed for, that you gave for others to go and find, that you went yourself and shared the gospel with. My prayer for this room is you would not say no to the greatest invitation that you've ever received. A biblical extension of God saying, be part of my plan. Put down the flashlights and pick up a purpose. And if you don't know where to start, I'm going to give you a hammer and a nail. You guys have heard it time and time again. You're about to go through a whole series about it. Basically, it breaks down into this. Go and sin, a.k.a. go here, a.k.a. welcome, go there, and then sin through praying and giving. Guys, say yes and take a step today. Guys, you can go here. You can welcome international students. You have over 300 here at CWU alone, and they are from countries in the 1040 window. What I'm not going to ask you to do is go make a project out of somebody, but go make a genuine friend and share the gospel with them because you share the gospel with the people you care about. But also go there. Go to the 1040 window. Man, go with Chi Alpha in the future. Man, go. Get on a plane. And if I'm going to ask some of you to get on a plane, she just said, okay, I'm going to hold her to that. (laughs) Guys, if I'm going to ask some of you to get on a plane, I'm going to ask the rest of you to help buy the ticket. Okay? Because we're not just called to go, we are called to be a a part of the Great Commission as a whole. So if you're not going yourself, help others get there by giving and praying. Man, you might not think you have much, but you probably have more than you think you do. And honestly, God never cared about the amount. He cared about the heart posture. So give, but also pray. You know how easy prayer is? Check this out. God, would you pray? Uh, God, would you send laborers into the harvest? Amen. (laughs) All right, come on, guys. We can pray. (laughs) Guys, I want you to be part of the Great Commission. I don't want you to say no to what God is asking and inviting you into. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you to take a step of faith. And in this little red card that was on all of the seats when you came into the room, you saw uh, a list of verses. Uh, Some of you, if you don't have cards, we could probably get you some cards potentially. Um, For you guys that don't have cards, you'll get one on the way out. For now, I'm just going to ask you to use your hands as if they're the card. Um, On the front are a list of verses. Some of these we went through tonight. Some of these we did not. Go home, fact check me. Make sure I'm not lying. Make sure this is God's heart for the world. Okay, and on the back, you're going to see super scary words for you guys on the front row right here. You can read the one in my hand. It says, I commit myself. Woo, that's terrifying. 
But guys, here's the good news. This is between you and God. This is not anybody's going to pick this up. This is not something that at the end of the day, I'm going to go around and see what you checked. But it essentially invites you to say yes to the Great Commission by making a commitment to yourself and to God to say, I want to be a part of this. The boxes on there to be checked are essentially one that says, I want to be a goer. The other says, I want to be a sender. You can check both. You can check neither. You can check one or the other. But what I'm going to ask you to do is just between you, your heart, and the Lord, I want you guys to consider making a commitment and saying, God, I'm willing to do anything, anytime, anywhere for you. And what that's going to look like is here in a minute, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up and we're going to go into a time of worship. But before, as we're praying, man, if you want to say yes to being a goer or a sender, I want to pray over you. The team wants to pray over you. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you raise this card above your head? And so guys, would you go ahead? Band's going to come up, bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to start praying. And what I'm going to ask right now is with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you don't have a card, you can raise your hand. But raise that card above your head if you want to say yes to a next step, to being a goer or a sender, whatever that may look like for you. Go ahead and raise those cards up, and I'm going to start praying over the room. Lord, I ask that you, in your sovereignty, in your glory, and in the beautiful ways that you want to bring glory to to your name throughout all the earth, to every tribe, tongue, and nation, would you use this room? Would you use every single person in here? God, would you use those who are saying yes, who have their hand raised high? God, would you use them to impact the nations for your sake? God, would you give them the boldness and the confidence to say yes and not just let this be a single yes, but a commitment over time. God, I ask that you would use this group of students to change the world for your sake. Lord, you are holy. You are mighty. You deserve our praise and all the glory. And so, God, I just thank you for these students. I thank you for what you're going to do through them. In your holy, holy, holy name, amen.